Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our all-church study, Anchored. This anchor of hope is the certainty and the promise that God is who He says He is, and that God will do what He said He will do. What God does for us is grounded in who God is, and knowing who God is provides an anchor in life, giving us a secure foundation on which to build our lives. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Welcome again to everybody here joining us in the building and online. We're glad that you're here. We're in the midst of this series called Anchored, and I hope that you're taking part of it by joining life groups and using our online study. We would love for you to, to dive in fully. Uh, Today, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be blessed because we're going to hear some testimonies of how people have walked with God and experienced those significant attributes. So I'm going to invite Bob Smith up, give him a warm Valley Brook welcome, and he's going to share a little bit of his testimony. Good morning. I think it's easier to speak sometimes unless you're about to expose yourself and making, you know. Anyway, in 2011, I left my job at an insurance company where I was an assistant vice president and doing pretty well. And I left it for what I believed was a better job, uh, better financially and a better opportunity. Didn't take long to, uh, to realize I had made a mistake And within just a few months, I was laid off. And from 2011 to 2016, I had a couple of jobs, but I got laid off two more times. And basically, things weren't going very well financially at this point. I had run out of all unemployment and all that. In uh, March of 2016, I received an offer from Morgan Stanley. From uh, Actually, from James Rooney, whom some of you may know. Uh, but Morgan Stanley had a rule that in order to work for us, you had to pass your, your Series 7 exam within three months, and you had to pass it on the first shot, or else you didn't have a job. Okay, Not that that was heavy on your mind, huh? <sighs> so I start studying for the exam. Now, the Series 7... It's a beast. It's just, a, just an ugly, ugly test, right? And I'm 57 years old at this point, not exactly uh, in the prime of my test-taking uh, abilities, right? On average, 35% of people fail that test, and hardly any of them pass it on the second try. So it's, it's you know, I'm taking this seriously. Um, and again, oh yeah, did I tell you? If I don't pass, I don't have a job. I scheduled the exam for Friday morning. And on Wednesday, you have to take what they call your green light tests. It's a simulated full exam. And on Wednesday, I took my first one. And on Thursday, I took my second one. And I failed them both. Friday comes. It's 8.30 in the morning, and I start my exam. And as, it's, as I'm going through it, it's like, it's not going well, okay? I just don't know, you know? The, the, the normal test-taking techniques that you might remember where you can eliminate two of the four and then you got a 50-50 shot, they weren't working because all four possible answers were pretty good. So anyway, I'm going through. And by the time I get to lunchtime, 
I don't know. I really don't know. I am, I'm struggling. So I don't eat. You know, I'm too nervous. And, and I started to pray. And not that I wasn't praying, but now I'm praying more earnestly, if that makes any sense to you. Uh, but nonetheless, I was doing it. Start the second half. And, and the same thing, first few questions, I, I just am not sure. And then I, and then I got one I knew. Oh, I felt good. And then I got another one I knew, and another one, another one. And I got like 40 in a row that I knew. And I was thinking, okay, okay, there's a chance. There's a chance. And so, uh, and so when, when you get done, you, you, you say, I'm done. And it comes back and says, do you want to review any? And I had marked a couple. And I reviewed them, and then I said, I'm done. And, you know, the worst question in the world, are you sure? <laughs> no. Do you know something I don't? But eventually you have to say, yes, I'm done. And then it's like the longest 45 to 60 seconds you go through, you know, that you can imagine. So you hit the button. Now, normally, you know, your heart starts thumping, and, you know, you're in a cold sweat, and you're just, you know... You don't even want to look at the screen. You know, you're doing one of these. But I didn't feel that this time. I felt a warmth. You, 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 I just can't, I can't describe it to you. It was a warmth. It was a peace that I had never felt before. I'm still doing this. I can sort of see myself, but it's surreal. It's like I'm not really attached to my body there at that moment. I, I can't describe it. But nonetheless, after whatever time it was, I look up and I get my result. Now, you need a 75 to pass the exam. And I look up and it says, pass, 75. Oh my. And I have no doubt in my mind that the presence of God was there. And it was by his grace that I passed that, that exam. Just so you'll, so you'll know, there's, just, if you pass that exam, you have to take another one. That's, that's, the, that's the national exam or the federal exam. Then you got to take the state variations and that, that's three months later, and you got to pass that. Exact same thing happens. I'm failing the practice exams. I show up. I have no clue. And then things start to click, and boom. Pass. 70, same score. And, and, and I, you know, I'm looking at, you know, oh, my goodness, there's the presence of God. If I feel doubt now, if I question I go back to that. I go back to that feeling. I was like, oh my goodness. I wanted that again. I want that again. Um, I will tell you that during that six years, we didn't lose our house. We, praise God. We didn't lose any cars. Yes, the credit card companies were a little mad at me, but, but you call them and talk to them and, and hey, nothing really. And it, and it really was by his grace. Yes. Well, I'm going to pray for you. The story of God's grace is something that we all need and that we need to hear and we need to remember. So I'm going to pray for Bob, but I'm going to pray for all of us. Father, we, we thank you uh, that God, that you showed Bob your presence and he experienced your grace. And, and I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would continue to hold on to your grace, that we would be anchored in your grace, that we would walk and know that you are there with us each and every day. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, sir. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yes.
Yeah. So Bob's story is a story of how he's experienced the grace of God. And we're going to be looking today at the attribute that God is a gracious God. And, and so I'm, I'm going to walk through some things here. Some of this may be a reminder, but hopefully it's going to take us deeper in our understanding of the grace of God. So first, what, what is grace? Well, grace is what makes Christianity different from every other religion or worldview. Hang on to that, okay? It's what makes Christianity different from every other religion or worldview. It's the essential attribute of God about how he relates to humanity and the world. And without grace, we can acknowledge this, that we all would be hopeless. A simple definition for grace is this. God's unmerited favor. God is the giver of grace. And grace is something that cannot be earned, it cannot be worked for, it cannot be bargained for, it cannot be purchased. It is a gift from God that none of us deserves. To say God is gracious means that God is willing to accept us as we are, to forgive our disobedience, and to bless us abundantly even though we do not deserve to be treated that well or dealt with so generously. That's what grace is. So let's talk about who we are. First, who we are without grace. The biblical worldview through which Christianity views all of life makes clear the reality of human nature is that many people would have to acknowledge something that they're going to challenge. But I'm going to just lay it right out there. The way our culture views life is that all people are basically good. In fact, most people would say, are you good enough to go, get to heaven? And they say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably just good enough to get to heaven. But the biblical worldview is that all humans, every single one of us, have inherited a sin nature from the very first people who God created. And those very first people rebelled against God against his instructions, and, and they sinned. And, and because of that, they were banished from the perfect garden and the perfect creation God had made. In the book of Romans, it says this about those people. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So the consequences of sin is death, okay? Not just physical death, but eternal death. So this is from the New Testament's point of view, but uh, let's see what the Old Testament says. In the book of Psalms, we see that when God looks down from heaven on humanity, he sees that everyone has turned away from him and become corrupt because he says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 19, that no one is good. In this, uh, it's the universal reality of human sinfulness. King David understood this. After he was confronted about his sinfulness for committing adultery with Bathsheba and then having Bathsheba's wife murdered, this is what he writes. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And then there are the words that God inspired the prophet Isaiah to write. We all like sheep, have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to our own way. Now the apostles, the apostles that we read about in the New Testament, they openly talk about how every single person at one time in their life is an enemy of God. They describe humanity as becoming friends with the world. In other words, embracing the culture and the lifestyle of the secular world instead of following God and the sacred culture that he calls us to. And they go on to describe our less than faithful following of God as adultery. Because we have turned away from our relationship with God and we've chosen to have relationships with the other lesser gods of the world and embrace wholeheartedly the unbiblical philosophies of this world. The Apostle Paul drills down deeper and describes what humans are like before they have known and accepted God's grace. This is what he writes in the book of Ephesians As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It sounds pretty harsh, but that's what we were like before grace. Paul's talking about where we stood before we believed in Christ and knew the grace of God. Now, when the Apostle James writes his letter, he is very direct, and he speaks directly to Christians because though, uh, through, though they have become followers of God, they were once enemies of God, deserving God's wrath, and They believed in God and received God's grace. And now he confronts them because they've returned to the old ways of loving the world and the culture of the world. And he calls them out very harshly. And this is what he says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I'll say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Now, I'm pointing that out because we need to know that friendship with the world and embracing the culture of the world and its view is incompatible with following God and believing in Jesus. Now, if we think, well, you know, that's just James talking to the Christians in the first century. That's that's their issue. We got to be honest. We've got to be honest and admit that for many of us who are followers of Jesus, we have flirted with embracing the culture of the world and and not just flirted, we've embraced it. We've actually been unfaithful to God. We've turned our backs on Jesus. We we can see that. You know, uh, before the pandemic hit, we may have admitted that, but now 20 months into the pandemic, the, the duplicity of our relationship with God and the world has been exposed because over, the, over the, these months, Christians couldn't attend church gatherings and, and uh, couldn't participate in corporate ways to follow their faith in Jesus. And when the green light was given, many Christians haven't returned to following Christ in the way that they were doing 20 months ago. Now, my, my observations are really not 
just my own, that come from talking to other pastors and, and from reading what church sociologists are, are writing about how the pandemic ha has affected the body of Christ, Christianity. Sociologists point out that, honestly, this duplicitous behavior by Christians wasn't caused by the pandemic. Uh, no, they point out that it was already happening to, the to a degree, but the pandemic and the cultural events in the pandemic accelerated that behavior and that departure from following Christ the same way we did. So, so the truth is this, that uh, once we were without grace and we were considered enemies of God. But James points out that even once we've accepted Christ and his grace, we can still be enemies of God. And, and that's what we have to wrestle with. Are we following Christ? But I am, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So let's talk about who we are with grace. When we looked at the biblical worldview of humanity uh, without grace, we saw that Scripture says we're all sinners, uh, like the very first people. And, and because of our sin nature that we inherited, it says we deserve death as the penalty for our disobedience to God. But with grace, which we receive through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive life. Now, one of the clearest passages actually goes back to that passage I read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2. So let's see what it says about us with grace. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So who we are with grace, according to this passage, is a long list. Some of these are, are clearly stated. Some of them are implied. So let's look at them. First, we're loved by God. We're recipients of God's mercy. We are alive in Christ. We are saved by grace for this life and the life to come. We are raised up to a new life in Christ. We are recipients of the riches of God's grace in Christ. So let that sink in. You're loved by God, this tells us. And other places in Scripture will tell us that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. God loves us when we are when we're living on this earth, and he still loves us when we pass away. The supernatural world of demons and angels can't stop God from loving us. Our fears about today, our worries about tomorrow, those cannot separate us from God's love. Not even Satan himself can separate us from God's love. So we're loved. You've received mercy. You received mercy when God sent Jesus to die to pay the price for your sins. So each one of us has received that mercy. Even if we never believe in Jesus, his mercy and forgiveness is offered. We just have to accept it at some point. Because the reality is this, is that Jesus died for everyone to give them mercy. You're saved for eternity. 
You have the promise of heaven, and when you die, you will live on there eternally with God, and you've received God's generous grace. That means you've experienced this grace that God has given you, remember that phrase, unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You didn't buy it. You can't borrow it for it. There's nothing you can do that made you worthy of it. It's unmerited. So if we've been given this grace, then here's really where for us as followers of Jesus, the rubber hits the road. What are we going to do with this grace? So I want you to remember the passage I read from the book of James. He points out that even once we've accepted Christ and his grace, we can still become enemies of God by our behavior. So just after James says that, though, he reminds us of what Scripture in its entirety tells us. He says, or do you think it is without reason the Scripture says that the Spirit who lives in us yearns jealously, but he gives greater grace? What does this passage mean? He's reminding us of the testimony of Scripture, that God has placed the Holy Spirit inside everyone who has come to the place where they say, I believe in Jesus. Now remember, believing in Jesus is just not intellectual assent, okay? It's not just saying, I think I believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus translates into a life lived. It's not uh, static, it's active. And, and so when we believe in Jesus, start following him, he fills us with his spirit and the spirit is intensely concerned about anything in our hearts that would be a rival for God in our lives. When, when you become a follower of Jesus and you begin to deviate from what you said you believe in, you're going to experience what I call the nudge of the Holy Spirit. It's, the Spirit is, is um, gentle. Uh, you know, the, it's not like you get taken over by uh, and become some type of robot. But when you're filled with the Spirit, he's going to nudge you when you start to deny Christ, when you start to turn your back on God. And, and it's going to be subtle, so you're, you're going to have to pay attention. And it, sometimes God may use the Spirit internally or God may use the Spirit through circumstances or through somebody else. Uh, so the Spirit is going to speak to us about anything that's going to be a rival to God in our lives. You see, the Spirit yearns for the sons and daughters of God to follow God. James says that God gives us then this. He gives us more grace to follow God through the Spirit. So he, he's actually giving us more unmerited favor. So with that in mind, I want us to look at what we should do specifically with the gift of grace that God is continually blessing us with. And the first thing, it's, it's going to be basic. You need to accept God's grace. There's just no two ways around it. You've got to accept it. In the second letter that Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, he said this about God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. 
not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So, so Paul is describing a gift. A, a gift is given. It's not earned. So a, a gift then must be received, accepted. Paul's saying that this gift was given to us from the beginning of time, that God has purposed for each and every one of us to receive this grace gift. So to accept it means that we actually receive it and take it to be ours, and it becomes ours. It's no longer the giver's, it's ours. I, I was skimming the news this week, and I, and, uh, I discovered a story that I, that I think will um, help us understand grace, and, and, it's, it's a, and it's an amazing story. So uh, if you were fortunate enough to be one of the 100 people who worked for Sarah Blakely, uh, Sarah Blakely is the founder and CEO of the clothing company Spanx. Whoever thought I would talk about Spanx in a sermon, you know? Um, uh, but uh, she just uh, sold a majority share of her company last week uh, for $1.2 billion, that's with a B, dollars. And uh, she realized that she didn't get there on her own, so she did something amazingly gracious. If you saw it in the news, you know what I'm talking about. She gave each of her employees two round-trip tickets to anywhere in the world. And she said, you know what? While you're on that trip, you're going to want to have some food at a nice restaurant. You're going to want to stay in a nice motel. So I'm going to also give you $10,000 each. Now, could you imagine anyone saying, uh, Sarah, no thanks. You know, I, I, I don't want to accept that. But... You know, on her announcement, they show the response of her employees. And it's very clear that they're overwhelmed, they're excited, and they are receiving the gift. They're accepting it. They're already saying on that video where they're going to go on their trip because they have received the gift. Now, that's what it means to receive a gift. We, we take ownership for it. It becomes ours and it becomes part of who we are. So every single person in the world has been offered the gift of grace by God through what Jesus did to lead us back to God, to save us from eternity separated from God, to pay for our sins. But we have to receive the gift and accept it and let it become part of our lives. So if you accept God's grace, then the next thing you need to do is anchor your life in it. If you've accepted God's grace, you need to anchor your life in that. So a little later in that same letter to Timothy, Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, to, to be strong in the grace basically means to, to be anchored in it, to understand all that you've been given and accepting that gift of grace that God has offered you and taking responsibility for it. Owning it. Living in that grace. Being aware that your life needs to operate out of that grace. And because we've been given grace, 
We should be grace givers. Of all people in the world, Christians who know they've been given grace should be the givers of grace. You know, when, when we think about the craziness that we've seen in our country over the last couple of years, you know who should be different? Followers of Jesus. You know who should be handling the strife and the anxiety and, and the anger and everything in gracious ways? It should be those who have received grace. We need to anchor our lives in it. So let's talk about the next thing. We need to use God's grace. When we accept the gift of grace and come to faith in Jesus, God blesses us with even more grace. We receive the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us, and the Holy Spirit comes to be our teacher, our guide, our comforter. But the Holy Spirit also gives us gifts to use for God and his kingdom. Peter writes about this. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. This is what Peter is telling us. He says, listen, you've been given the grace of God, not just through salvation, but you've been given more. You've been given a purpose for living. You've been given forgiveness. You've been given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has continued to bless you with guidance, with comfort, and with gifts to use for God. We've been given gracious answers to prayer like Bob shared in his testimony this morning. So, so recognizing that we've been given grace, Peter reminds us that we're supposed to be stewards of this grace. That it's not just ours to keep, it's ours to use for the greater God, good that God had in mind. And that means this, we need to share God's grace. Talking about his own life, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, God had specifically called Paul to be an apostle, but Paul also recognized that he, like all followers of Jesus, was supposed to finish the race of faith and complete the Christian's life task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You know, those, those last two things aren't unique to Paul. Look, I, I believe we all have unique calling. I believe that God has given us all gifts specifically to the way that he's wired us. But I also believe that he's called us all to finish the race of faith, believing in him. And he's called us all to testify to the good news of Jesus Christ. God has placed that in each of our lives. And... Every single one of us has been put in a certain sphere of influence. I don't know if you've thought about that much, but you have a sphere of influence. You might say, well, uh, what do you mean I have a sphere of influence? You have relationships with a certain sphere of people. And that sphere is a place where you can share the grace of God. Now, what am I talking about? Well, uh, you know, if you've been blessed to have kids, 
that's part of your sphere of influence. You need to share the grace of God with them and testify to who Jesus is. You should also do that same with the rest of your family, with your spouse. And, And you need to do this all in ways that are gracious and that would give glory to God. Now, if you struggle doing it with grace, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. But your sphere of influence goes beyond your family. Your sphere of influence is where you work, where you get educated, your neighborhood, the people that uh, you like to hang out with and do hobbies with or, or sports with or whatever. That's your sphere of influence. Now, if you say, well, wow, Clark, you know, my sphere of influence is made up of all Christ followers. Well, that's good, but we're called to share this grace with the world. So we need to intentionally broaden our sphere of influence so that we can share the grace of God with people. You know, God has given us grace that is amazing. We're going to close with that song. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, but but here's what I want to close and ask you with. We have a God who has been so generous to us that we can't even begin to fathom all of the grace that he has showered on us. The faith of being a follower of Jesus, whether we own it or recognize it or not, is anchored in the grace of God. So with that in mind, we have to accept the grace of God. We have to live our lives anchored in that grace and use that grace for the glory of God and share the grace of the good news of God with all people. So this morning, I want to give you the opportunity. If you've never accepted the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you the opportunity. I'm going to pray a prayer and invite you to do so. Uh, If you have, I'm going to pray for you to live anchored in that grace and operate out of it. So if you would, bow your heads. Father, as we've gathered in this place today, we recognize that you are a gracious and generous God and you have given us more than we can imagine. For anybody who has never accepted that grace of God, I I want to invite you to do so. And you can just do so by repeating the words of this prayer I'm going to give you. You can pray it silently right where you are. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. Go ahead and pray that. I believe that you have graced me with forgiveness through faith in Jesus. I accept that Jesus died for my sins and that he rose again from the dead. And today, I want to follow him all the days of my life. And as we conclude that prayer, I want to pray for all of us. Father, you have blessed us with grace more than we can imagine. Lord, help us to accept that grace, to anchor our lives in it. Help us to Use the grace that you've given for your glory and to share the truth about Jesus with those that you have put in our circle of influence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.